Uh, welcome to Hudson Institute, the Betsy and Wally Stern Policy Center. Um, my name is John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer. I'm also co-director of the Hudson Center on Substance Abuse Policy Research. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us, both here and those who are joining us online as uh, this is being streamed. Um, we are delighted uh, to be offering today's program that will look at um, some of the background issues to the probably the most deadly killer in America today, and that is the uh, opioid epidemic in terms of un uh, preventable loss of life and harm to our, our citizens. We're delighted to begin this program with uh, remarks by um, Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. Uh, I want to welcome him to being here and thank him sincerely for all he's done on this issue and continues to do in the uh, United States Senate. He is a physician who for nearly three decades provided care for uninsured and underinsured patients in Louisiana's charitable hospital system. Senator Cassidy attended Louisiana State University as an undergraduate and at medical school. In 1990, he joined the LSU Medical School teaching students and residents. Uh, in 2006, he was elected to the Louisiana State Senate. In 2008, he was elected to the United States House of Representatives. Uh, he represented Louisiana's 6th Congressional District. In 2014, he was elected to the United States Senate. He serves on the Health, Education, uh, Labor, and Pensions, the Health Committee. He also serves on the Energy and Natural Resources, Finance, Veterans Affairs, and Joint Economic Committees. He has a long record of service to the people of Louisiana and to this country, and uh, we, we are also uh, I think uh, at this time it's important to note he has uh, not only a prominent voice in health care reform in Washington, but he is a person who has worked in Congress uh, across the lines in Republicans and Democrats to get things done and seeking effective uh, solutions to health care and to the opioid scourge. So I, I couldn't be more delighted to welcome uh, Senator Cassidy here today. Thank you, John. You sometimes have a little bit of a shock when you come in to speak. I suddenly realize that my talk is far broader than the headline. So, uh, uh, so if you say, well, this is more than what the headline of the event is, uh, chalk it up to bad staff work. Where are you, Jeff? You're busted. Um, we all know the problem. We wouldn't be here were it not for, the, for our common knowledge, but I'll just say a few things to set context so that we know we are all there. I go around Louisiana, but also around the country, and you just hear one heartbreaking story after another. Uh, the, the family of the 17-year-old who gets out of a treatment program, and the day he gets out, two-week inpatient treatment program, the day he gets out, the pusher finds him, gives him drugs, and he dies. And the family's asking, what could they have done? Was two weeks adequate? Uh, all the questions that then bubble up. And unfortunately, as I say, a story such as that, we all in this room know of such a story. Um, uh, 63,000 people in 2016 died from a drug overdose, 21% increase from previous year, everything abating, uh, everything increasing. So how do we address this? One thing that my staff, and we had a great meeting with John yesterday, we call it an all-of-government response, or more prosaically, I suppose, a safer families, healthier communities strategy. Now, safer families, healthy communities. What does that mean? Nice tagline, but what does it mean? Uh, and starting with my meeting with John, several other meetings that just uh, went along with 
uh, everything we've been talking about, not least of which just speaking to families back home, like the family of a 17-year-old whom I described. So some things that we have thought about, and, and, um, and I, I, will, I will, again, shamelessly steal from the three meetings I had yesterday because they were all great. But as John and I were speaking, he pointed out that CDC does not currently do epidemiological work on uh, pain. Uh, nor does it do real-time analysis of where the overdoses are occurring. Not just deaths, because that's an end, but say ER visits. Why is that important? I'm a gastroenterologist, uh, and, and so what I'm about to describe, as you might guess, since it involves feces, is of great interest to me. If you get uh, an outbreak of hepatitis A, oftentimes that will be a result of uh, contaminated strawberries. And let me just trace how CDC would work when it comes to contaminated hepatitis A outbreak. Uh, all of a sudden you notice that there is a pop-up of Hep A in Portland, in Shreveport, Louisiana, in Detroit, Michigan, and in Portland, Maine. And CDC will go in and they will do typing and find out that although these areas are quite different from each other geographically, the type of the hepatitis A is common in all places. Well, why would strawberries give you a, uh, and hep A comes from fecal contamination of food, why would strawberries be giving you uh, this footprint in different places? And they will trace it back to a shipment of strawberries from a particular field in Mexico where the worker defecated in the field, subsequently contaminated the strawberries. The strawberries are flash frozen without being cleansed. And so when you drink your daiquiri, you're drinking something a little extra. Now, that's all great work by CDC that allows them to go to that field and quarantine that field and put in new measures of sanitation by that food processor. Let's think about how we could do that with drugs. We see an outbreak of overdoses related to fentanyl scattered across the country. Someone goes in, CDC or DEA or someone, and does a fingerprint and understands that this particular fentanyl is chemically identical. Well, then how did it get there? At McAllen, Texas, Laredo, Brownsville, Los Noches, all these places along the border, they are confiscating drugs. And you might be doing a finger, a chemical fingerprint of the drugs being confiscated. And you realize that all these different places came through one place and then spread across the nation. You now know the distribution network. Well, then they have a manifest on these trucks going through. You know where they come from. And perhaps you can trace that manifest back to the field in which the poppy was grown or the chemical was brewed. And that allows DEA to come and focus their efforts. Once DEA focuses its efforts, then FinCEN, which is our Treasury Department organization which looks at trade-based money laundering, can then focus their trade-based money laundering analysis, cooperating with the government of Mexico, on this region as opposed to the entire nation. This is a way to have an all-of-government response. Not the only way. What is another way to have an all-of-government response? Again, shamelessly stealing from another conversation I've had recently with a pain physician. And she says in her practice, although Medicare does not pay for it, when an elderly person comes in with a broken hip, they will do ultrasound-guided nerve blockage, and that ultrasound-guided nerve blockage eliminates the need for opioids. They may give a little bit of fentanyl at the outset before the block is in, but once the block is in, this incredibly painful condition 
is adequately treated. Medicare does not pay for ultrasound-guided pain blocks. If Medicare put forward a payment policy in some situations in which they would do this, Medicare is, um, as I, uh, is, is the straw that stirs the drink. Once Medicare has a payment policy for such a procedure, typically commercial insurance will follow, then Medicaid, and it now becomes common practice to do this as opposed to giving an elderly person a bunch of opioids, which genetically a certain percentage of them are then become, are going to become addicted to. Another part of an all-of-government response, which is quite different from the law enforcement side, and the last kind of all-of-government response that I would propose is, um, uh, we know, if you speak to a bunch of people treating opioid addiction, and you say, I know, intuitively there are some which are doing it right, doing everything, and having better results. And there are others that are just mills, rolling people through, collecting the check from the payor, but not getting uh, the kind of results that the good programs have, those providers just start nodding their head yes. I just saw Dr. Scranton nod his head yes. This is commonly known. Well, there are programs which monitor outcomes. It could be something simple. What is the rate, if somebody's on Medicaid, what is, if you track who goes through a treatment program and then shows up in an emergency room within three months with an overdose and trace it back to the treatment program, most likely you're gonna stratify. They all will have some that have recidivism, but some will have much higher rates of recidivism. There should be a feedback mechanism where this information is given back to those which are certifying. Those programs not doing well are evaluated, hopefully increase their quality, but if they're not, they are no longer allowed to receive payments. And those who are doing it well, in some way perhaps receive more payments. Again, an all of government response using the data analysis to give us a better response. I can go on, but that is somewhat of the meat on the bones of what we call a safer families, healthier communities strategy. Now, in my office, we've done a number of things. Uh, just to mention, the uh, Congress and the Senate has done a number of things. The CARE Act, 21st Century Cures, allowing EMS to administer life-saving drugs, appropriating close to $4 billion to fight the crisis. Uh, we've asked DEA, excuse me, GAO for reports of the Foreign Narcotics Scheme Ping Act, uh, asking DEA questions regarding scheduling of fentanyl, asking Department of Education to promulgate uh, anti-opioid addiction uh, education information for primary and secondary school. Uh, but the issue is what do we do next? And I think that we uh, have everything we just described and more. One more thing I will mention because I ran into a Mr. Martinez on the way in uh, who does trade policy. I don't see somewhere out there I can't see. Um, one other thing that we are looking at is trade-based money laundering. Trade-based money laundering cartels, not just, car, not just drug cartels, but also organizations like Hezbollah move over $100 billion a year out of the U.S. into other countries, typically through trade-based money laundering. They will misinvoice, uh, and through that misinvoicing, allow the transfer of a large amount of money for a relatively small amount of goods and get their dollars out. Now, that's not supply. That's not demand. That's not treatment. That is financing. And if we can scrunch financing, that is the ability to just disrupt the entire process. 
Of that $110 billion estimated to move annually, currently the federal government claims about $7 billion of it. So less than 5% we're getting of the $110 billion that they are moving. We can do better. I'm told after 9-11, uh, the uh, all-of-government response to the way that terrorism was being financed resulted in a disruption of that financing network. I think we now need to have that same sort of all-of-government response to the financing of the drug trade. Not that good people aren't doing good work, but bottom line, they're moving an estimated $110 billion a year and we're confiscating less than 5%. So however good the work, there's more good work to be done. Uh, let me pause here and take any questions. Uh, and uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to be here, John, and would appreciate any question you have. It can be about anything you wish, including LSU football, but uh, perhaps more appropriately about opioids. Yes, sir. And identify yourself, please. Hi, Senator. My name is Jackson Richmond. And my question is, uh, you and Senator Graham tried to propose a bill to repeal and place Obamacare. Uh, were the GOP as projected to get more seats in the Senate and um, maintain its House majority, would you and Senator Graham reintroduce uh, Graham-Cassidy? And if so, would it include a measure to combat the crisis? So uh, we did introduce. The current system is not sustainable. This is not a conversation for that, but it's easily seen by a lot of statistics. Uh, on the other hand, you probably will need 60 votes. And so far, despite the fact that premiums have increased by 400%, um, uh, there's been a lack of 60 votes to do something about that dramatic premium increase. So I think the lesson we've learned is that it must be bipartisan. I had previously uh, uh, introduced legislation designed to be bipartisan with Susan Collins, but again, got no takers. Right now, this issue is so politicized, even solutions that allow both sides to win, and that was clearly Cassidy Collins, are kind of falling on deaf, ear deaf ears, kind of a casualty of the current environment. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Uh, Linda Gelfi, I was at a bipartisan policy center meeting this morning, and a young man stood up asking a question. If people knew that Florida doesn't license any of their opioid recovery um, operators, so it's maybe a problem that some of those people don't know what they're doing. I totally agree. Now, I can't comment specifically on Florida, but as I mentioned, intuitively you know that there's some that do it well and some that do it less well. And so ideally, we use the data that we have on payments. And there is a system whereby the states are, are supposed to report their Medicaid data to the federal government called TMSIS. We're trying to strengthen that. Although I had another organization that came in that said on the private sector as a claims processor, they have the same information. Might be a way to get there sooner. But we need to do a post-treatment evaluation of those who go through treatment. Uh, there's an old public health maxim, that which is measured is addressed. If we measure the success of these programs, we'll address those that are less successful and reward those that are more. It is, in a sense, value-based purchasing. It is what we absolutely should be doing. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Eric Carrick. I keep When I keep hearing about opio opioid abuse, what percentage of it is by illegal drug trade and what is through the medical system and the... And 
is it going to be hard to tackle this because of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, via their donations to politicians? So the uh, issue of the, there's three categories, if you will. There's the licit drug being prescribed licitly, so a doctor's prescribing, but she or he is prescribing 20 pills when seven would be adequate. And we know there's a New England Journal of Medicine article recently same type of patient going to the same ER, two docs, one doc order, uh, prescribes more routinely, the other doc less. And because of genetic susceptibility, a certain percentage of those patients prescribe the greater number of pills will become addicted. So that is the legal drug being prescribed in a legal mash, uh, fashion, but perhaps not appropriately. There is the illicit drug, excuse me, the illicit drug, the legal drug being described illegally. There's pill mills. Uh, that there will be a doctor who will see a patient every five minutes. The patient gives them a check for our cash for $250 and walks out with a handful of prescriptions, each one written to the max. And the doc rolls between states, losing their license in Mississippi, getting their license in Louisiana, losing it in Louisiana, going to Oklahoma. That is known well among the medical community. So legal opioids, but prescribed, if you will, illegally. And lastly, there's the illegal drug. There has been a decrease in the prescription of legal medications, but an uptick in the influx of the illegal. How do you know that? Because as we've seen decrease prescription for the legal, the number of deaths from opioids has continued to climb. So it is multifactorial, but it does seem like legal drugs now are part of, illegal drugs are now filling the void from a declining rate of prescriptions. That declining rate of prescriptions is from greater awareness by the dentists, physicians, and other providers out there. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, Josh Shepard. Um, regarding, this, as a follow-up to this question, uh, regarding that third category of, or rather, uh, the first category, legal drugs that are being overprescribed in a sense, um, have doctors been amenable to, uh, amenable to the uh, new CDC guidelines regarding prescriptions? of these drugs? Yeah, probably too amenable in the sense that I think those are taken as general guidelines, but others are taking them as kind of firmer than that. But my state of Louisiana, for example, the Dental Society came forward to the state legislature and proactively uh, gave medications, I forget which, but maybe seven days should be the max. And the Medical Society came back and did the same. So, um, so there has been a response by the dental and medical community to give guidance to our members. Uh, to get it down. Um, uh, so, simple answer, absolutely. Yes, sir. Good afternoon, Senator Michael Spira. Um, we know a lot of people become addicted to opioids from surgeries and things of that nature. And is there anything, uh, non-opioids, is there access? How do we get more people access to these non-opioids so they're not becoming addicted um, from the post-surgery opioids that are being prescribed to them. Now, part of it is what I described earlier. For some of these very painful conditions, you can do something such as an ultrasound-guided nerve block. And there is this whole kind of sense of non-opioid recovery from surgery that the surgeons are now implementing as well. But part of it is common sense. Now I'm going to speak as a dad. Take my daughter, she gets oral surgery, the doc writes her for 20 of opioid. My daughter weighs 88 pounds. I'm thinking, ah, man, you know, I'm sure it's indicated, but I'm a little nervous about it. So I just put her on um, 
arthritis strength Tylenol um, every, I think it's every eight, every six, every, every eight hours, and Motrin um, uh, prescription strength uh, every six hours, but I would overlay them, and she never needed it. So part of it is just awareness. You can use Tylenol and a non-steroidal, which have different mechanisms of action, uh, and you can stagger their dosage and use them at higher dose and never have to use an opioid. So part of that, which is the um, uh, person who is really desiring to stay off of opioids but have significant pain relief can still do that as well. Maybe one more question. Yes, ma'am. I think they want you to wait for the microphone because we're streaming. Thank you, Senator. Um, given your position on help and finance, uh, I had a question. I know that both committees have approved uh, opioid packages. Do you know what the holdup is in there being a package brought to the Senate floor that can be voted on kind of like what the House has already done? Are there any sticking points that are um, delaying it or anything? No, I just think it's probably, I mean, there's a minimum of floor time and a maximum of things to be done. I don't think there's any sticking point per se. I'm never the quite the right guy to ask about process. But, but there is um, spending bills and appointments that have to be done. But there's a lot of concern about opioids, which is bipartisan, and I do anticipate that. I have a hard out at the bottom of the hour. I thank you very much for your concern about the issue. Thanks for the great questions, and John, thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you Senator. Thank, join me in thanking the Senator for being here. Thanks. Thank you. I'm going to ask uh, our panelists to uh, join me on the stage, and we'll start. Again, I want to thank Senator Cassidy for being with us and uh, uh, thank him for his hard work on uh, health care, on the opioid crisis, and on a number of other issues that are important to this country. Um, Today we are releasing uh, a new study. Uh, there are copies of this available um, to the audience and it's available online, uh, dealing with the issue of um, opioid use in medicine as well as the um, giving some background and quantifying the dynamics of the uh, opioid crisis. Um, <coughs> we've assembled a panel of, uh, of, of distinguished people. I'm grateful for all of them for joining us. I'd like to introduce them briefly. We'll make, they'll make some general remarks, uh, uh, and uh, we uh, will allow any kind of uh, points that come up that are uh, needing a little bit more discussion to happen, and then we'll open this up for questions from all of you. So we'll leave plenty of time. And uh, uh, let me begin, though, by, by introducing the panel. First, uh, I am joined by my long-term colleague, David Murray, who's sitting uh, in the middle of uh, three panelists. Uh, Dr. Murray is a senior fellow at Hudson Institute, where he co-directs Center for Substance Abuse Policy Research, while serving previously in posts as chief scientist and associate deputy director for supply reduction at the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Uh, Dr. Murray directed extensive scientific research on all aspects of the drug problem and help coordinate high-level interagency efforts to limit production of illicit drugs and counter transnational crime. Um, he has a PhD from the University of Chicago and has taught at Brandeis in the past. Um, 
Next uh, to my far left is, uh, is Barry Meyer, well-known journalist with extensive reporting experience on the opioid crisis going back to its earliest days as well as many other topics. But he's really one of the people who I learned a lot from in, in looking at the problem uh, and uh, the, the difficulties and the, and the, and the, and the terrible consequences of, of some of the actions that brought this crisis to a head. Uh, he's a reporter. He was a reporter. He's just retired, but I think he's uh, uh, still known by many of us as a reporter for the New York Times, going back to uh, uh, when he started in 1989. Um, he was the first journalist to shed <clears throat> national spotlight on OxyContin problem. Uh, his 2003 book, Painkiller, which I believe you said is being re has been reissued, just been reissued yeah. um, foretold the coming opioid epidemic. Uh, he was a member of the New York Times reporting team that won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize in International Reporting, and he's also a two-time winner of the George Polk Award. His reporting at the Times concentrated on the intersection of business, medicine, and public health. We're, we're very pleased that he's been able to join us. Finally, I'm, we're joined by Dr. Richard Scranton. He is the Chief Scientific Officer for uh, Pacero Pharmaceuticals. In that role, he directs the company's clinical research, scientific communications, and health outcomes research. He has a master's degree in public health and clinical epidemiology and clinical effectiveness from Harvard's School of Public Health. He earned an MD from Quillen College of Medicine at East Tennessee State University. He completed his residency in the U.S. <coughs> Navy, honorably discharged as lieutenant commander. He's, he's continuing as an assistant professor also at Harvard Medical School. Um, he is someone who's on the front line of looking at some of these alternatives and can talk to us about, about uh, what, uh, what that looks like, what the obstacles are, and what the promise is. Again, I appreciate you all being here. I think I'm going to start by, acti by asking my colleague, David Murray, to briefly summarize what's in this report as a basis for our discussion. Thank you, John, and thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the panelists. And uh, I think my main contribution is to sort of review what we think we are arguing in this paper and why, what the evidence is, some of which you'll be familiar with, some of which might be different dimensions of it that we want to, uh, to highlight. So there'll be a, a brief overview of the frameworks at the table, as it were, for the other panelists to engage. But before I, I begin this, I do want to very much endorse what, what Senator Cassidy has said. I thought was quite striking. He's well aware. He's very capable. He seems to be very engaged with this issue. But in particular, when he opened with that thing about safe families, healthy, and he identified the differential between how the CDC responds and mobilizes nationwide with urgency and with dollars and with multi-agency outreach for an, an outbreak of, say, uh, Ebola or, or, or hepatitis A. The differential with how we regard this opioid overdose is striking. And that tool of epidemiologic mastery and response and integration across the whole of government is really something that's quite urgently needed. And I think every time John as former drug czar goes to any meeting, that's probably the primary thing that comes out of his uh, exhortation is how can we build this in real time with real mapping, with real epidemiologic capacity and precision that we're using elsewhere in the world. We're not bringing it to bear here to solve the problem the best we can. That said, uh, while the worst crisis in drug policy history continues to rise, multiple nationwide efforts are underway urgently to stem the damage. This, however, will involve more than just assessing the toll and a fixing responsibility for the opioid epidemic. Policy solutions must be provided that will reduce the human and social costs. So the following report in response provides an overview of recent developments in the opioid epidemic of use, dependency, overdose deaths, 
also identifies the two major pathways by which opioid initiation worsens into serious personal and social costs and then reviews emerging policy changes that can serve to mitigate these costs, particularly with regard to medical practice. The report contains five central arguments showing where the crisis now stands and then addressing pathways along which remedies, some existing, some in development, could be provided, then examines existing empirical support for these alternative approaches for which we're calling, evaluates procedural and regulatory impediments to these alternatives, and calls for new models of medical practice and intervention that could alleviate the current crisis. Specifically, we try to show one, more than 42,000 overdose deaths attributed to opioids alone for the most recent year with complete data, which is 2016, part of the problem, the retrospective nature of this. This toll, as found in preliminary reports for 2017, is still rising, and is probably rising through 2018 as well. We're not measuring it. The unprecedented surge in the availability of prescription opioids has been a major driver of opioid use consequences, particularly as excess pills contributed to non-medical diversion and may even have triggered a crossover into the illicit market. At this stage of the epidemic, however, as Senator Cassidy noted, the illicit opioid black market, particularly for illegal synthetic analogs smuggled internationally, is the single most significant factor driving overdose deaths, at least as we measure that dimension of the problem, great lethality and availability of these things. That's one dimension of the crisis that we've not seen adequately addressed, I believe. The question was asked about the illicit dimension earlier, proportionally in the rest. The rise of the illicit dimension as a driver of this has been somewhat neglected. We saw this early on when we were in office, when within three short years, when opioid use was relatively small in the United States, Mexico tripled the production of heroin. In three short years, tripled the production of pure heroin to be targeted at the U.S. They're on 2010, 12, 13, prior to the real emergent outbreak of surge. Why was this being readied to flood American streets that contributed then, that joined with the pharmaceutical dimension and led to a greater crisis? Prescription deaths, mercifully, as of 2016, have declined somewhat, while heroin-attributable and illicit fentanyl-related deaths have risen steeply. The latest data available found in the Journal of the American Medical Association from May of 2018 showed over 19,000 deaths involved synthetic opioids, 17,000 involved prescription opioids, some of them diverted illicitly, and 15,000 involved heroin. So the illicit market and fentanyl and heroin together are considerably outstripping the uh, pharmaceutical dimension. Nevertheless, reforming medical practice and pharmaceutical opioid availability remains a significant imperative. Finding better interventions for treating both chronic and acute pain and moving the medical system beyond opioids appears as a new medical responsibility. A history of polydrug abuse proves to be a critical risk factor for those who are experiencing opioid dependency or overdose. For many Americans, however, such standard medical interventions as surgery is a substantial pathway as well for opioid initiation, which not uncommonly leads to persistent opioid use and misuse. Studies attest that for opioid-naive patients undergoing a variety of surgeries, a substantial fraction will persist in using the opioids weeks later, 6 to 9 percent, depending on the study and the type of surgery, after the surgery. Moreover, in some instances, for patients who are already opioid experienced before they go into the surgery, the proportion of persistent users measured as much as a year after surgical intervention. Between 45% to 71% of those who are opioid experienced 
are experiencing persistent refill use of prescriptions. Non-opioid alternatives are needed in medical practice to reduce opioid exposure beyond necessity. Opioid sparing technology, medical practice, and procedures and models need to be incorporated. Even under proper, proper uh, medical supervision, an extensive reliance on opioid medication for pain management presents several risks for patients, particularly at high doses continued for long periods of time. The exact pathway is not completely understood. However, large numbers of unused or residual prescription opioids after a medical episode suggest that standard dispensing practice may be over-reliant on opioids <clears throat> when alternatives could supplement or even supplant their use. Overall, the two major pathways for opioid misuse, illicit market, consequences of proper patient care, have in fact intersected, each feeding the other and providing sources of misuse as the crisis has grown. The flow of illicit narcotics across our borders must be shut down, but standard medical practice must also be reformed in order to stem the rising damage in a manner that will be comprehensive and sustained. Number three, progress has been made in one dimension of the effort, as we've heard already. After a high point in around 2011 in prescribing, the number of opioid prescriptions, as well as the strength of dosage units, has begun to fall. By 2015, the CDC was measuring about a 17% decline, which has since grown even past that, in pharmaceutical opioid dosages on a per capita basis. That's progress. The improvement has come through administrative action and guidelines, health agencies, congressional pressure, and shifts in things such as even the Drug Enforcement Administration's production quotas. But simply driving down access to medications, while important, cannot by itself be a sufficient response. Not only are patients with legitimate medical needs being pressured, some physicians also feel that their medical judgment is being circumscribed. What is needed is a solution to the other side of the equation, which is to provide non-opioid alternatives to patients who would otherwise be left with untreated serious pain. New multimodal protocols and medications that incorporate developing as well as existing non-opioid analgesics show promise in surgery and in treating chronic pain. With these new multimodal models, not only is exposure to opioids reduced substantially and overall circulation of unused opioids curtailed, but equally important, patient outcomes are improved. Compared to excessive patient and societal costs of opioid reliance, such superior protocols should result in improved patient flow, discharge, quicker recovery, fewer readmissions, reduced hospital costs. The long-term result will likely provide superior patient well-being and more effective medical practice with the goal of reducing the opioid crisis also be achieved without the consequences of untreated pain. This report reviews multiple studies showing already strong empirical evidence of non-opioid alternatives being deployed successfully in the treatment of chronic and acute pain across a wide range of procedures and surgical interventions. Non-opioid analgesics, such as liposomal bupivacaine, are treating patients without them suffering unnecessary pain or occasioning the risks of misuse and dependency. Finally, we discover there are existing structural and regulatory impediments to the more widespread abuse or more widespread adoption, excuse me, of medical practices that forego the excessive reliance on opioids. These impediments present themselves across a range of issues from physician training to federal billing codes, insurance expectations, which is found in the bundling of payments to hospitals and providers. This report examines ways of overcoming these impediments and calls on all parties addressing the opioid crisis to adopt a new calculus of costs and benefits to the patient and to society when considering pain treatment alternatives. The report concludes by calling for this new model of patient care built around a targeted flexibility in the management of pain, incorporating patient involvement 
in accord with a better understanding of specific patient vulnerabilities. <coughs> such a preventive medicine approach to patient care should guide further such factors as the future of drug approval processes that the FDA, the future of medical training, the future of patient education and awareness, and lastly, the development and adoption of an expanded set of medical practice tools for non-opioid alternatives. That's the basis of the report, and we've got some specific citations and follow-ups that are in greater detail in the longer document. Thank you. Thank you, David. Meyer, tell us how we got here and okay. your thoughts on where we should go. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, General Walters and uh, Mr. Murray, Dr. Scranton, and everyone here at Hudson and all of you uh, for turning up. And then secondly, I'd like to tell you all how annoyed I am that Senator Cassidy <coughs> came in here and basically stole my thunder and stepped on all of my lines. Uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that a politician could be so well-educated <laughs> about a subject of public concern, but uh, to his credit, Senator Cassidy um, was and, and was very impressive in his comments. Uh, so, you know, I had the, the, the rare uh, opportunity to be a witness if you will, at the beginning of this epidemic. Uh, I was a reporter at the New York Times in the year 2001 when we got a call. The call came from a uh, drug, uh, a pharmacy board employee in the Midwest. And he was calling in to give a tip to us that was, was basically that there was this, this new drug on the street that had become sort of like the hottest drug on the street, and it was called OxyContin. It was being made by a company called Purdue Pharma. And the incredible thing that, that this individual relayed to us was that this company's sales representatives was going around to doctors and, and pharmacists and telling them that this drug could not be abused and, in fact, had gotten uh, approval from the Food and Drug Administration to make a claim that it was less abusable than other narcotic painkillers, drugs that had been around for a really long time, like Percocet or Vicodin. And so an editor came to me. I was just minding my own business. I wasn't looking to do work. I wasn't looking to spend the next God knows how many years working on this subject and said, you know, Barry, we got this tip. We'd like, since you're sitting around doing nothing, why don't you start making some phone calls and try to figure out what's going on, which I did. Uh, and so I thought Purdue, well, that's a university somewhere in the Midwest, and I didn't know anything about narcotics, and I didn't know anything about pain treatment, and I got a very quick <clears throat> education about many of those things. And sort of what sort of percolated out <coughs> of that and what became the basis of, of Painkiller when it was first published in 2003 was a story basically of a desire by medicine, by doctors, to treat pain and a desire to treat pain more aggressively, a recognition that for many years, uh, pain particularly in seriously ill people like cancer patients have been undertreated, that patients had suffered unnecessarily. And uh, so there was a medical initiative. It was, became known as the pain management movement uh, to treat pain particularly end-of-life pain more aggressively so that people didn't suffer. There was no point to it. Uh, 
this movement, th these desires then got hijacked, if you will, by the pharmaceutical industry and by Purdue Pharma in particular, who began to market uh, OxyContin for all kinds of pain, for dental pain, for, for joint pain, for arthritis, for sports industry injuries, you know it, you name it. And, it be and they began to justify to doctors that they could use these drugs based on these supposed reports that showed that the long-term use of narcotic painkillers did not have consequences to them. Uh, fortunately, I don't have any, well, fortunately, I don't have medical training because you would not want me to operate on you. But uh, I have time to read medical reports, which doctors often don't do. And when I went back and I started looking at the reports that the advocates of greater opioid use were put, putting forward to promote these drugs use, it became clear that these studies had nothing to do with the long-term use of opioids. These were all short-term studies. It had nothing to do with the consequences that would befall patients if they would use these drugs over a long period of time. So it basically became a story that was being told. And I remember uh, Russell Portnoy, who was one of the major advocates of this, a very esteemed pain treatment doctor in New York City, said to me at one point later on, well, you know, Barry, we were just trying to create a narrative, you know, a narrative that would convince doctors to treat pain more aggressively. And I thought to myself, like, I want to write fiction one day, and that's when I'll start creating narratives. You're a doctor. You're supposed to base your actions on science, on facts, and you're going around basically admitting that what you sort of promulgated was fiction, was a narrative. And so the use of these drugs became extremely widespread with tremendous chaos and consequences. The book came out in 2003, and I, like most reporters, were sort of, I guess, maybe arrogant at times might be the best word, thought, okay, I've written the book, I've done all the reporting, I have solved the problem, it's over. And I sort of went on to do other things. But what became abundantly clear to me uh, in subsequent years was that I was at 2003 just seeing the beginning of a problem. Uh, I, I had no idea that, you know, kind of the things that I had written about, the types of things I tried to draw attention to would basically get run over by sort of the, the marketing prowess of the pharmaceutical industry, the willingness of doctors to ignore the fact that there wasn't evidence to justify the widespread use of these drugs. And the use of these drugs quadrupled over the next 14 or so years. The number of overdose deaths associated with these drugs quadrupled, and things just kept going along. I mean, I, I'm happy now that uh, you know topics like the topic we are talking about. This is a discussion. This is the absolute urgent discussion that we need to have because we could have had this discussion ten years ago. There are alternatives to opioid use. 10 years ago, there were studies that were appearing in the medical literature uh, 10 years ago. Uh, they were being ignored. They were being blocked or lobbied 
by uh, drug industry interests. And before I go on too long and get too, too long-winded, you know, I think this is an opportunity, today is an opportunity for all of us to talk about what some of those alternatives are, how important it is to treat both pain and addiction compassionately. That, you know, these are, these are not linked uh, problems, but uh, we have to treat them. And we, we can't just treat either of them with pills. You just can't throw pills at pain patients. And, or pills at addicted people and expect something good to happen. You have to give them sort of multifaceted pain treatments. You have to deal with them compassionately. That is one of the, the you know, sort of the, the lesson that I have taken away from all my years writing and reporting about this. And if we can make just a little bit of headway here today in discussing that issue, uh, that would be great. In my view, with all the great things that Senator Cassidy has talked about, I know that uh, General Walters is interested in, uh, this problem is going to be best solved, not necessarily on the government level. Government can help. But it's going to be best solved by companies, by, by community leaders, by people like ourselves who are going to demand that People who are in pain and people who are addicted receive good, compassionate treatment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me now turn to uh, Dr. Scranton, uh, who is a <coughs> practitioner, a researcher, <coughs> who is on the front line trying to both um, develop and prove alternatives, give people the care that he's <coughs> talking about, but also tried to work with the bureaucracy to get some of these uh, alternatives through. I wondered uh, maybe to start off with what you took away from the paper or any general comments you have on this topic. Oh, I think it was a wonderful paper that really highlights all the information that we've learned over the time. And, and what saddens me as a physician is, is Barry's talking about a book he wrote. is about an area where I trained as a physician and, and treated patients. And we've known about this for this period of time. And I don't think we've made the progress where I would hope to see it um, I think the paper points to the fact that there are solutions and we need to act quickly. We can't continue to uh, wait for someone else to solve our problems. And it is going to be a multifaceted. It will take patients and physicians and payers and as well as government and communities to make an impact. And I think that's really what I think the white paper speaks to. It kind of lays out where we can begin to make a change. I wondered if you could also respond, uh, Barry touched on this, but, uh, but uh, many people in this discussion, and I think more of them now, uh, 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 that some of these measures uh, uh, to, to deal with the quantities of opioid pain medications that are being distributed, will come back and argue that uh, reducing use means uh, reducing the ability of, uh, of physicians and patients to deal with pain, um, that, uh, uh, that, that this is a kind of... Um, uh, you can't you can't do a good thing without doing a bad thing, and by by trying to uh, uh, reduce the uh, use of opioid pain medications or come up with substitutes, you're you're condemning people to pain. So I agree. I, I think we have to caution ourselves. There's no quick fix. A simple solution of just saying we're going to reduce prescription volume by half is not a solution for everyone. It's a much more complex problem uh, than that. Um, it does take. Um, a community to do this, but also important, we need to 
find those centers that are doing the right thing, as Senator Cassidy talked about, and reward those individuals, and then propagate those good practices. That's how we change practice in medicine. Um, but what um, it, there's no, that's part why physicians got into this trouble. We've always wanted to do more. And sometimes doing more is actually has unintended consequences. So we need to educate providers about what is the right course of action and then reward that behavior uh, quickly. And I think that's really the, how we can make this change and not allow patients to suffer. No, one, no physician wants to go back to the time. In particular, this happened in pediatrics where we, would, we didn't think children would, would remember the pain that they had, so we didn't treat their pain, and that was clearly wrong. As a military physician, uh, we wouldn't treat uh, a, sh a shoulder who was in pain because we said, well, at least we know he's alive. All those things um, hurt patients in the long term, so I do not want to go back to that era either. Senator Cassie talked about uh, both developing alternatives and, um, and changing the system to allow the uh, reimbursement for services that, that are now reimbursements in ways that, that alternatives are now not reimbursed by, um, by uh, the government, by insurance companies, by the, the, the uh, Christie Commission report has as one of its recommendations a desire to unbundle some of the uh, now bundled uh, reimbursement uh, uh, efforts, but um, um, as a way of, of kind of, re of, of, of allowing good things to happen and not make, create barriers. But uh, I wondered if you could say something also about how do we propagate these things rapidly? You touched on this. Um, uh, when we have alternatives, when we have things at work, when we have now the estimate based on the death toll from 2016 is 170 plus people a day dying equivalent. It's a, it's a, it's a equivalent of a horrific mass murder every day. And so the urgency of getting this knowledge, information, technology, and reducing these barriers. Can you say a little bit about how we do that, how we inform physicians? So one thing is through the societies, and we've actually had some great relationships with American College of Surgeons and various societies to help educate everyone that we're all part of the, the problem, but we're also the solution. Um, so this through education, through societies and training, um, all of that is uh, very effective and been proven to be effective. But also some of the things that happened to us in the payment reimbursement does create real challenges. Hospital systems are, are struggling sometimes and then to try to use an alternative that may at, at first glance appear to be more costly uh, could be avoided if we remove the, the incentive to use opioids. Unfortunately, opioids are cheap and they're effective. Um, and so therefore, that's what is reimbursed, that's what's paid for. If you think about a patient now who leaves from um, a hospital, gets a prescription, if a physician tries to write that prescription for 10 oxycodone, and they go to fill it, they'll pay the same copay if they got 30. And, and there's an incentive then, well, I want the 30. I want, I want you know, more for my, my dollar. Um, there's the incentive when you're having surgery, when you get an, an opioid alternative, that's not covered. It's bundled into uh, the overall surgical uh, care practice, so they have to choose what alternative they're going to use, and oftentimes, unfortunately, they're going to choose the one that's less expensive. Um, and not look at the unintended societal impact of that choice. All that, I think, could be changed very rapidly through policy um, and then educated through the societies, and we could see a, a significant um, alterations in physicians' behavior that actually benefits the patient in the short and long term. And just, just to jump in on that, uh, while I've spent a lot of time beating up on pharmaceutical companies, I, we shouldn't leave out beating up on insurance companies uh, because they, in fact, uh, profit. Uh, through the use of opioids by, by uh, not paying for perhaps more costly methods of pain treatment, be it behavior modification or non-opioid, 
types of treatments. And to me, uh, maybe this is Pollyannish thinking that, you know, large employers, big folks like General Motors or Ford or now, or now you know, a famous uh, Harvard physician, Atul Gawande, is now going to, to work for a consortium of major employers, including Berkshire Hathaway and a few other people, that, that major employers could, you know, contribute tremendously by requiring their insurers to provide these alternative therapies to their employees, unions as well. I wanted to also lastly ask Dr. Strand a little bit about his experience and, and what, what we should think about in terms of the FDA approval process for some of these alternatives. This is another area where, um, on the one hand, FDA process was on the front end of bringing some of these, uh, um, these, these medications to market. Uh, in, in certain ways, which I think some have, and I have some sympathy to, were not uh, properly um, uh, monitored and, and examined. But the alternatives are going to go through, many of them are going to go through that same process. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how it's working and what we need to pay attention to? So, absolutely. I mean, there's a division that's their sole responsibility is to, to approve uh, drugs to treat pain, analgesia, anesthesia. Um, and it, they have a lot of drugs that are coming through that. There's a lot of companies that will be looking for solutions, and, and I don't think anyone should get a shortcut because they're providing an alternative. They should go through the same rigorous process. However, I think during any crisis, the FDA does need to prioritize. So, again, I'll give the example in the pediatric population. Um, there was just a recent publication out of the Journal of Pediatrics that shows the persistent rate, particularly high in our adolescent population, um, patients between, say, 13 and 21, young adults, about 10% of them who get opioids oftentimes do the surgery. My son who had an ACL repair, um, they were at risk, and they will have at least a 10% to upwards of 20% persistent use of opioids after their initial exposure. And yet there are no approved uh, anesthetics for kids under the age of 12. And so as we go down to the FDA, and we are going to be conducting those studies, and we'll be conducting some of the largest uh, studies in the pediatric population to demonstrate that you can provide an alternative, those should be prioritized. And we should be able to get those through the process much quicker and in the hands of the providers so they can provide these to their patients. So I think it's just setting the right priorities and expediting where that's appropriate. Well, I think we have a few minutes for some questions. Let me again repeat my request that you wait for a microphone and you ask a question. Uh, and uh, again, we'll be around afterwards. If you have others, other comments you want to make to some of the panelists, uh, we can do it then. But uh, let's, let's ask questions now, and I'd like to get as many as possible. The gentleman in the back there. Thanks. Hi, uh, Namo Abdullah. I'm a journalist for an international news agency, Rudal. Uh, so I just want to know if uh, you can tell us where the United States stands on this problem in first in the developed world and uh, secondly on a global scale. Is this problem as big in Europe, for example? And uh, my second question would be, like, uh, for, for the journalist from the New York Times, are you hopeful that uh, we're going to see a solution for this problem, let's say, in a year from now before about 50,000 more people die? Thanks. Let me try to take the first part of it. Um, globally, again, there are two parts to this that are significantly different. We focused a lot of our discussion on the diversion of medications used in legitimate medical practice. Some of them are criminally diverted and distributed, but 
a lot of this problem in the beginning of our opioid uh, uh, kind of epidemic was the was the um, consequences of legitimately prescribed medications in many cases. If you want to think of it, there, there's, in the United States, there's been three waves, which has been different from other parts of the world. The first wave of this was the was the uh, the, the growing and kind of explosive uh, prescribing of things like OxyContin and other opioid pain medications based on a misunderstanding, in some cases a willful misunderstanding, of research that said that they could be safe in ways that they were not, and then a resistance to correcting that. So we had a kind of increase, as our paper indicates, as the data shows, that has slightly uh, diminished. That's good. We've tried to have you know, less um, uh, uh, harm done by legitimate medical practice. Built on that first wave, and not the wave ends and another one starts, but adding to it was, an, as, uh, as Dr. Murray said, a, um, an explosion in production of heroin in Mexico. Now, while Mexico is not the supplier of heroin for most of the world, as you may know, Afghanistan is the largest single supplier of heroin in the world, and there are other places. Um, but for the United States, Mexico is a single supplier. The explosive production of, of heroin in, in uh, Mexico uh, came on the scene as, an, as a little bit subsequent to the peak of the uh, pain medication uh, uh, part of the wave. But it added another series of, 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 uh, of overdose deaths as a result of heroin use. On top of that and subsequently, and added to it, was fentanyl. Uh, an opio synthetic opioid that was uh, uh, shipped either from China or precursors were shipped and it was uh, uh, um, um, made in, we believe, in Mexico based on some of the investigative reporting. And that has been even more deadly because of its high potency and concentration. It's been mixed, sold as heroin, it's been mixed with other things. Uh, there was a recent story saying the new director of CDC, Sun, uh, was overdose with fentanyl and mixed with cocaine. So, uh, and that's not a new mixture to see in the world. So, but what the United States has faced is a kind of three-part worsening, and that continues, even though the, the reports on deaths lag. And keep in mind, we have no reporting nationally on the extent of addiction. We have no reporting nationally on the extent of non-fatal overdoses. We have no reporting nationally that would indicate the consequences and the extent of this in our society. So there, we know there's great harm being done. Uh, we know that many people and many communities are disproportionately affected by this, but the actual magnitude is not measured. Um, now, you add, so other parts of the world have been dealing with, um, with opioids for quite some time in the form of heroin. Um, there is some uh, medication diversion in other parts of the developed world. It's generally not as common in the, in, in the less developed world because the, the, the resources and the medical infrastructure isn't there. This is one of those things where our wealth and sophistication made us a unique victim. Uh, um, but uh, it's been additive and we are somewhat different. And in fact, some of the international treaties, some of the other national parties to them have criticized the United States for the extent <coughs> of the prescribing of these substances, which is significantly, some would say, quite significantly disproportionate to the rest of the developed world. I think there was a question in there for you. Well, the, the question was um, sort of rhetorical one, I guess which was, as a journalist, uh, am I optimistic? Which the answer naturally is, if I was optimistic, would I be a journalist? Uh, but uh, no, I'm not optimistic. I, you know, I still have hope. Uh, certainly one year is a very short time frame. 
uh, I hope within the next decade, uh, we'll see this uh, episode start to wind down. The last thing I want to do is write yet a third edition of my book 15 years from now. Um, so I am hopeful that you know people of good faith will do what they can to make the changes that are necessary to start bringing these various tenets of the problem uh, under control. We'll try to be shorter in the answers to the woman at the uh, end back there. All right, when you were talking about alternatives, no one's mentioned medical marijuana, and I think it's particularly cannabis oil. I think that's what they use for pain, pain relief. Um, has there been more of a move for states to legalize medical marijuana? And how much of a pushback is the pharmaceutical industry giving towards this? There, there are some pharmaceutical uh, research protocols underway to uh, take parts of the cannabis plant. Of course, there are a number of cannabinoids, as you may know, in the cannabis plant. Cannabidiol has been talked about in terms of... Uh, 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 treatment for certain kinds of seizure conditions and others, other conditions. Uh, it's not a psychoactive uh, uh, cannabinoid, so it has different properties. There are, um, uh, of course, uh, prescribable forms of of, uh, of uh, cannabis, including THC, that are available in the market. The the unusual character of uh, medical marijuana has, of course, been it hasn't been approved by the FDA. In fact, the FDA has declined to approve. Um, um, uh, smoked marijuana or some of the other commercially available forms as a medicine. Um, uh, there is a, there is, there are some forms that are being tested, uh, a nasal spray and others in other parts of the world and under review in the United States. The federal government's been one of the places in the past that's been supporting some of the uh, uh, most extensive research of anybody in the United States. But again, uh, having had to deal with this issue when I was uh, director of drug control policy during the George W. Bush administration, um, part of the problem here is a version of the problem you saw with, with opioid pain medications. You want to have some grasp of what it means to be safe and effective, what the difference is between a substance that can be a uh, cause of addiction and dependency. I mean, of, of all the people who the government estimates need treatment of, in the United States for the use of illegal drugs, which of course cannabis is classified as an illegal drug under our scheduling system, the, the vast majority, that is more than all other drugs combined, are dependent on marijuana. So this is, I, I know we have a kind of cultural view that marijuana is okay, it's a soft drug, it's now, it's a great uh, 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 substance for various conditions. There's probably, uh, uh, there's certainly possibilities of some of extracting certain kinds of, um, of, of forms of, of cannabis uh, that for, for practical use, as I say, it is prescribed in, in, in medicine now, not as a smoked cigarette or as a gummy bear, as you can buy in some places in the United States. But I think there, if we want to be serious about this and follow uh, uh, the, the research and approval process, we, we may find some that, it, that is. The problem we have is that for purposes, I think, of largely other issues of legalizing marijuana, this has been done by ballot initiative and other things, which... Um, um, is likely to cause huge problems, as you can see in the example of people reporting what's happening in Colorado. So um, yes, maybe uh, we can expand the use of, 
of cannabinoids, um, but it would be wise, especially considering what we've seen now, what we have to before us as evidence, that we do it in a, in a rational way. Hi, thank you. My name is Hope Sievers, um, and I have a question in the sense of addressing this multi-pronged problem. What are the ideas and the fact that we can hold insurance companies accountable to being able to reimburse patients for alternative care that we've seen certain large organizations such as NIH doing a lot of research. We see many pain clinics who are saying, you know, we can give you prescription painkillers, but why don't you try other alternatives such as massage therapy, acupuncture, nutrition? Why aren't we showing that our care model is changing from a soap note program while treating patients to being educated enough to educate our patients on other alternatives. Are there any responses when it comes to insurance care and how we can help our patients? So we are beginning to see some movement with uh, some payers like Aetna. We have a collaborative with them where we actually are, uh, the insurers stepping up to educate and provide uh, reimbursement in dental care where they provide an alternative to treat pain, in particular um, our drug, the liposomal, a long-acting local anesthetic. So I think you. I think the, the employers are also putting pressure. I think that it has to really come from that. I mean, uh, from that base. To, to, and they are asking from the insurers to provide opioid sparing uh, for a variety uh, for chronic pain, acute pain. So I think that's you're going to begin to see more and more of employers as they become educated that that this is what's affecting their uh, uh, population base. Have you talked to anybody who's uh, trying to deal with this on the employer insurance side? On the on the insurance side, yes, Aetna I've spoken to, and uh, that's right. They, they are trying to reduce the drug use. And, you know, the big question is to what degree are they actually supporting alternatives to opioids? And, um, you know, so like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts put out a big report that their opioid use was down 50% over the last couple of years, which is quite striking. So I'm presuming from that that they are providing patients with some alternatives to opioid treatment. Uh, you know, the thing that we speak a lot about, uh, about overdose deaths, that's become the marker in this epidemic. Obviously, it's the most uh, terrible consequence of, of the use of both legal and illegal opioids. Uh, but I recall very vividly that, again, one of the advocates of, you know, greater opioid use who uh, sort of had a, an awakening about a decade later said to me that, you know, addiction isn't really the problem. The problem is that these drugs cause patients to opt out of life. And I thought of that when Senator Kennedy was speaking, because uh, Cassie was speaking, because you know, I saw studies in earlier in my research that huge numbers of, of uh, workers injured on the job, kind of relative standard workplace injuries, uh, back injuries, for example. You know, once they are put on opioids, and when they're on opioids for 30 days or more, the likelihood that they're ever going to return to work goes down dramatically. So, I mean, though that kind of information really puts an onus on employers and insurers to do things differently. Can I just jump in with one thought, but make it very brief here, but at the end of the paper, we talk about the fact that much of the opioid consequence 
and the doctor-patient relationship is one thing. It's a dyad here, and there's a complexity of insurance and choices made and certain costs that are incurred. But so many of the implications and damages are external. They're externalities in the economist sense. They're passed outside the immediate doctor-patient relationship right. to society, right. to the workplace, right. to the, uh, the labor force, to the, the, the lost family, the damage. These externalities have to be considered, I would argue, if we're going to now incentivize. It's not just we have cost-benefit studies that show hospital discharge rates improve, and therefore the econometrics drives the insurance industry. Yeah, good enough, but we have to look at the externalities, the damages that have been accrued here that have been passed into the wider hands of those who are not immediately involved and have to be calculated as part of what we need to do to rectify and remedy and resolve, as well as getting people back into treatment and recovery. These are the nature of the externalities that we have not considered sufficiently. Also, Dr. Scranton and I were talking a little bit before the uh, event. Um, there's another part of this that we've only begun to grapple with, and that is we now have created, we don't even know how many million Americans who have a dependency problem. Mm -hmm. Some of them are still active in that dependency. Some are in recovery. They are going to need medical care. That medical care needs to be shaped by the fact that there's an awareness of their past dependency because their risk to take some of these pain medications mm -hmm. has now been changed by that experience. And that's going to continue to be changed for the rest of their lives. In our society, we've now created an at-risk population that we don't know the size of and we have not properly considered uh, how to treat and, and treat in the most safe and humane ways. I want you to start over here, this gentleman. Thank you, uh, Josh Shepard with the stream. And this might be for Dr. Scranton, um, but it really follows on from your discussion there. Uh, one aspect of the crisis is uh, regarding patients who are addicted to, to opioids and who then go doctor shopping for those who might be, you know, looking to prescribe, um, you know, what they desire. Uh, so Mr. Meyer spoke about the importance of treating uh, addiction and uh, these kind of issues with compassion. Uh, what would be the compassionate strategy uh, for helping these patients? That's a tough question, but we do have to invest more in education and, and programs where those patients can seek the appropriate care to, to, without being necessarily treated only with opioids where they feel like they have to shop around. And my biggest concern is, is that those doors are closing down because of our ability to track patients' prescriptions and physicians' concerns about uh, the penalties they may face. And so they will seek other sources of opioids, whether they be heroin or fentanyl, and that's not a solution either. So there will have to be um, investment in substance abuse uh, uh, programs where we can help put those patients on a treatment path that they can live their lives. And we need to develop more therapies uh, that can treat that pain differently. Um, and that's where a lot of us are, who are researchers in this area are trying desperately to find those modalities where we can treat a patient with compassion and not uh, subject them to a long-term uh, sadness. The FDA recently held a meeting to talk about this whole issue, and they heard from countless patients with genetic and chronic illnesses, such as sickle cell anemia, saying that they've been on opioids for decades in some cases with no problems, they're not addicted, but it enables them to return to life and have a quality of life. With the new restrictions in opioid prescriptions, they are having troubles getting their prescription that they've been on for 10, 15, 20 years. And, um, this is a whole, how do you 
break out that section of the population which really doesn't appear to have an addiction problem from the population that with long-term use does have one. I will say this. I think that's key. This is a complex problem. Um, we segment even further. Um, in the surgical arena, it's a different, uh, so when we talk about minimizing opioids, there are oftentimes where we hear people concerned, well, you're going to take my opioids away. No, we're talking about when you're coming for an elective surgical procedure, when you're trying to fix a painful condition, what you don't want to do is leave with a persistent use of opioids. So we need to look at that patient population differently. We need to look at the patient population that uh, we have no other uh, solution, but we can monitor them and provide them pain relief, and if that requires opioids, monitor that. Um, so there, do, there has to be some different um, scenarios. That's why I don't believe a quick fix where we just say, just cut all opioid prescriptions in half and that will solve the problem. That will not solve the problem. So it does need to be tailored. Yeah, I think from my experience in government trying to look at the regulation of some of these issues and, and, and how you have to deal with them, we want to be able to trust the frontline physicians and healthcare providers to take people as individuals to understand their circumstances and to give them safe care. Obviously, when we have as many people becoming addicted and dying, we're not doing that for a significant number of people. When we have as many people as we now have who come in for legitimate medical care and then leave with a dependency problem that, that upends their lives, we're not doing the kind of job we want to expect from our country and our institutions. I think there's also issues, sub-issues here about, yes, there are people who've used these substances for a long time, but I'm not a practitioner. I've talked to a lot. I'll try to educate myself with people who are and researchers, for a lot of these opioids, uh, people develop a tolerance. So the, 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 there are people who have used some of these substances over a long term, but there also are people who have had a problem with sustained use over a long period of time, creating a need for additional use and additional amounts that cause additional consequences. So again, I think the issue here is one size doesn't fit all. The risk factors, the circumstances, the alternatives, the, the obviously you're going to have to try some things with some patients as we do in other forms of medical care and see what works best and try to give them the best path. And for some, there may not be a perfect path. So um, we have to face that as well. But again, right now, we have an out of control uh, abuse problem. Some of it is coming in the medical system. We, the evidence suggests maybe a little bit less now, but we certainly want to do much better than we are. And some of this is, a large part of it's coming from massive criminal um, um, trafficking in deadly opioids and in other drugs that are now coming in larger quantities like methamphetamine, like cocaine. So um, this is another dimension of this problem that overlays the problem of medical diversion. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Hi, my name is Kayla Gubov with ONDCP. And I have two questions. First of all, um, on the issue of rural communities and opioid use, what did your research see um, different in rural communities? How can we address pain management in different ways for these communities that are being hit really hard by opioid use, um, but don't always respond well to traditional urban methods? Um, and then my second question is about medication-assistant treatment, or MAT, and <coughs> how can more physicians come on board with using MAT once someone does have a substance use disorder? I, I will take on the rule, because I trained in Upper East Tennessee rural medicine, and I agree with you, there's a challenge, particularly, uh, and I can just speak to the 
the post-surgical, we think we're doing a good thing because those individuals are, are going to go back to the rural area. There's, there's not a lot of care. So what, what we're going to do is give you a larger prescription of pain medications because you do want to inconvenience you to come back to, to see me and, and my practice. And that has also led to a significant problem that we're, we're actually working with the state of Illinois to look to set up these networks where we can have an appropriate uh, kind of a safety net for them where we can diminish opioids, but yet them, but still have the ability to, if they need help, they can get it uh, quickly. Uh, so it is a challenge and, and, and the education will be different. We're working with societies to figure out what is the appropriate education for those communities um, and working with the local community leaders to, to try to educate about that. Um, but it is a challenge. Um, the, the second, I think it's back to time. I mean, physicians right now, uh, they're burdened with a lot of paperwork and, and checks and things of that sort. And they need to be able to see that that effort they put in does um, have that impact. And so I think there again, it's making that a priority and then incentivizing appropriately for those physicians that are doing that and rewarding that best behavior practice. Um, that's the only way I've ever seen it to work. I should say the study, we did not do detailed uh, geographic analysis of all the, uh, the uh, places this epidemic has manifested itself. We tried to talk about the overall problem and the, and the uh, policy implications of that in, in a more general way. Um, my own view is that um, it's, the information we have about the geographic distribution of this epidemic is unconscionably inadequate that it is not tracked in the, with the priority and with the capacities that we have. I've written something about this, criticizing the Centers for Disease Control for not treating this as a disease and tracking it, but not just you know, reports on overdose deaths a year, over a year after they happen, which, okay, that's some data, and there, I recognize there are complications in collecting this, but that's not even tracking current overdoses that aren't fatal, it's not tracking addiction, it's not tracking the, 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 the forms of this pathology, it's not track, tracking the geolocation of these things. That means that people like uh, Senator Cassidy, when they're asked to make decisions about where do we put resources, what's the size of the resources, what's the size of the threat, we're not, we're not giving any of that information. And that is information we can get. We just have to decide to make the institutions that have the capacity to do it and to properly uh, give them the capacity. Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, my name is Mary Budars. I'm a retired internist, and I'm talking about education. I was wondering what you think about just the, the general population. Everybody now expects they're going to be completely pain-free all the time right now. So I agree, that's a challenge of doing research. I can tell you in this country, as we conduct uh, uh, research studies to demonstrate reduction in opioids, one of the biggest challenges is that everyone wants to treat that patient to a pain score of zero. And our challenge is, is that currently in a regulatory process that I, would con I could design a perfect study and I would demonstrate that uh, my group did fine as pain, but my, the alternative also got opioids, but they couldn't get out of bed. But they had a pain score of zero. And based on our approval process, that would be a failed trial. And so this is, we have to think about how we design these set reasonable expectations of our patients. What we are now moving towards is an equation that it's not just about pain, it's pain with the expectations and is related to function with low to no opioids. That's really the outcome. 
I'm getting patients back up out of bed or home or, or functioning at their level with low to minimal opioids. That's really should be the outcome. And if that comes with a little bit of pain, that's okay. And just, just to add uh, to that, I, I remember I was speaking to a very nice woman who was the head of a, a pain advocacy group for patients. And she was, you know, she touched on the point that you raised, which is that if I as a patient or if one as a patient wants to reduce their opioid use, wants to cut down those drugs and maybe increase their function at the same time, uh, then some pain may come along with that. And accepting that pain and accepting that they're going to have some level of pain as they move forward uh, is just the inevitable price uh, of making that choice, and it's one that she chose to accept. I think we need to conclude on that note. I want to thank uh, my uh, fellow panelists here, Mr. Myers, Dr. Murray, uh, Dr. Scranton. I want to thank Senator Cassidy. I want to thank all of you for being with us and those who joined us online. Uh, again, this report is now available online at the, at the Hudson website. Uh, we will also be uh, um, um, uh, hoping to continue some of this work as we go forward because this is obviously uh, one of the most deadly threats uh, happening in America today and uh, we're not on top of it yet. So thank you all for your interest and thank my panelists. Thank you.